0: have problems, we'll be reading about that this morning in Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would uh, prepare our hearts to listen to you and help Tom as he speaks to give... um, the words that we need to hear and change Father, help us to deal with problems that might come up in a godly way that advances your, uh, your gospel to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thank you, brother. Good morning. I want to say thank you to all of you guys who are here when we start the sermon. <laughs> It is a, That is an encouragement, and I appreciate it. Uh, this may be the shortest passage that we cover in a single message uh, in this series, but I believe it will become evident as we proceed why it's worthy of a whole sermon. These seven verses go to the heart of why we at CBC handle important decisions and ministries in this church the way that we do, uh, These verses reveal very much about what our priorities must be in order for the oversight of God's flock to happen on God's terms. As we work through these seven verses, we're going to see uh, four essential pieces to what uh, Luke presents here. First, the problem in verses one and two, then, verses three and four, the solution then the implementation of the solution in verses 5 and 6, and finally the outcome, the effect or impact that this had in the church. Um, first, the problem. Verse 1 of chapter 6 is the first time that Luke uh, refers to the followers of Jesus as disciples, and that then becomes Luke's primary way to speak of believers, uh, from that point forward, the word disciples shows up 29 more times in the book after, after this. Here again, uh, Luke tells us that the newborn church is growing very rapidly in number, uh, just as he has done over and over in these progress reports that he, uh, that he puts either at the end or at the beginning of just about each, ep- almost every episode that he has shared with us from the history of this early church. Now, in our circles, we are quick to point out that uh, that numbers, head count, is not uh, what we consider to be the measure of our success as uh, as a church, and it's not the measure of the success of the elders in overseeing the church, um, but rather faithfulness. Faithfulness is the measure, and I agree with that assertion. Our fundamental assignment is the same one that the angel gave to Peter and the apostles in chapter 4 after freeing them from prison uh, when he said, stand and speak the whole message of this life. Stand, that means be immovable, and speak, proclaim the whole message of this life. And we are called to adorn that gospel message with lives that match up with it. And most especially, we adorn our proclamation by the love that we have for one another. God has not given to you and me the ability in ourselves to turn the heart of any sinner to Christ. Uh, That is the work of the Holy Spirit. We proclaim, the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces and transforms. And we can be very sure on biblical grounds that many more people will reject the word of the cross then we'll receive that word. Jesus said, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it, Matthew 7.14. But there is no question, brothers and sisters, that God intends to grow Christ's church through Christ's church. So if our ministries consistently yield no substantial growth in numbers, then we would do well to take a hard and prayerful look at whether or not our hearts and our activity match up with the priorities that God has set before us in his word. And if they do line up, if after after a prayerful and hard look, we, we, we find that, that our priorities do match up with God's, then we must trust God's timeline and not ours. Um, many of you here know of faithful missionaries who've spent many, many years before they ever saw a single convert. In fact, we know a missionary in Indonesia who went 13 years before they saw the first convert and now they've seen tens of thousands of converts. But if the Holy Spirit shows us that our priorities do not match up with His, then we must make the hard changes that His Word calls us to make. We should always ask God for a bold and courageous witness just as we saw these Jerusalem saints do in chapter 4, a request that God was very eager to answer. Luke tells us in verse 1 here, in chapter 6, that there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews in the church in Jerusalem. And I'll explain those terms in a moment. But the complaint was that the widows among the Hellenistic Jewish believers were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, now, the word Hellenistic means Greek. A Hellenistic Jew is a Greek-speaking Jew who has been largely a part of a Greek culture. Uh, Aramaic was the dialect of Palestinian Jews, the Jews that, that grew up and lived in the, in the area around Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, um, The the Hellenistic Jews, oh, and I should say, uh, when it comes to Hebraic or Aramaic-speaking Jews, that would include all of the 12 disciples. The Hellenistic Jews were the minority in the Jerusalem church, um, and most of them had migrated to Palestine from other places in the Roman Empire where even the Jewish community spoke Greek. Does that all make sense so far? All right. Jerusalem, the city of David, was considered the holiest city in the Jewish faith. The Jews of Jesus' day believed that the glory of Yahweh still dwelled in the midst of his covenant people in the Holy of Holies inside the temple, even though the curtain had been torn from top to bottom the day Jesus died and they didn't see anyone in there. But they believed that God still dwelled in their midst God, by the way, does not dwell in the midst of a rebellious people for very long. You find that in the Old Testament very clearly. Um, Jews from all over the Roman Empire came to Jerusalem three times each year for the great pilgrimage festivals, just as God had commanded. Many Jews found it desirable to move from other parts of the Roman Empire to Jerusalem, especially as they approached the final days of their lives many Jews wanted to finish their days in the city of David. And that was very understandable. And then, as now, uh, women tended to outlive their husbands. And the result was that many of the widows living in Jerusalem were Greek-speaking Jews who had come from other parts of the empire. Now, if you add one more variable to this, it starts to become very clear why this issue that we find here in Acts 6 was of such great great concern to the, to the apostles who were the, the functional elders of this newborn church. At this early point in the history of the church, most of the Christians in Jerusalem were the first Christians in their extended and very Jewish families. Let me say that again. At this point, most of the Christians living in Jerusalem were the first Christians in their whole extended and very Jewish families, right? A Jewish widow who came to faith in Jesus Christ was very likely to become estranged from her whole extended family. But if you're a widow in biblical times, your livelihood depended on your extended family. You with me? Now, add to all that the fact that the majority of Jews in and around Jerusalem spoke Aramaic and had many cultural practices that were not held in common with the Hellenistic Jews. Those differences in language and practice have always been the, the, the fodder for rivalry and division. Now, put yourself in the shoes of one of those widows, and you can start to see that things are pretty rough. And when those kinds of divisions occur, the majority typically has the upper hand over the minority, right? The result in this case is that as food was being distributed daily to meet the needs of the neediest members in the body of Christ, the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. And those same Greek-speaking widows were among the very least able of all the saints to provide for their own material needs. This was a big problem. Now, much is made in sermons and commentaries on this passage about the word complaint in verse 1, about how damaging and divisive a complaining and grumbling spirit is when it infects the body of Christ. But I want to point out that the solution that we will see the apostles propose to the problem here does not include any kind of rebuke against those who raise this complaint. I believe the complaint regarding the less than loving treatment of the Hellenistic Jewish widows in the Jerusalem church was entirely justified. That doesn't mean that nobody complained, that there weren't some who didn't complain very well, but the nature of the complaint was very legitimate. This was a violation of godly love for the downtrodden. A violation rooted in factional divisions among the saints. And that meant it was a violation of the very character of God. And as we'll see, the solution proposed by the apostles was all about ending the unloving and divisive behavior that had provoked that complaint. By the grace of God, the newborn church of Jesus Christ had experienced a magnificent start. The incident with Ananias and Sapphira had really been the only significant bump in the road so far. When the apostles became aware of the serious disparity here in the care of the Hellenistic widows, they knew that this was no small matter. It was the kind of thing that could very easily tear the community of the saints apart from the inside. And the need to decisively address this conflict smoked out another problem that the apostles also knew had to be addressed. They gathered the saints together and they said to them in verse 2, it is not desirable for us, the apostles, to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now we might be prone to interpret that statement to mean that the apostles thought that the care of that the distribution of food to the needy was beneath them somehow. That's not what's going on here. Consider again that by this point, a conservative estimate of the size of the Christian community in Jerusalem would have been about fifteen to twenty thousand, and that had happened very very. Quickly. That means that whoever did supervise the distribution of meals to care for the needy in the believing community was doing so for a congregation that was very likely 50 to 100 times the size of this congregation. 50 to 100 times. So making sure that food was fairly distributed to all was no small task. One very commendable facet of this whole episode is that it demonstrates yet again that the saints in Jerusalem were doing daily life together at a level that had never been seen before by any of them. Honoring our marvelous calling to be in the trenches of this life together as one in Christ increases the likelihood of complicated relationships If you want a life without complicated relationships, stay home and play video games. All right, that's the problem. The solution that the Holy Spirit provided through the apostles for this problem was that this problem that was threatening the unity and the spiritual well-being of Christ's newborn church is presented in verses 3 and 4. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I might have suggested 70 men instead of seven, but it's very clear that this was about oversight, not about micromanagement, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Beloved, that should have been the normal description of men in the church. Okay, shouldn't have been exceptional. Men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. That still should be the norm. And I should point out that the word men here is not generic for people. It means men. All seven of those chosen were men. Now, that does not mean that there were not women involved in this ministry. Certainly does not. But make no mistake, this was a position of authority. Okay? This wasn't seven men walking all over the city of Jerusalem taking food daily to all of the needy believers in a community of 20,000. That's not what it was. It was seven men supervising the distribution of food to the needy. Luke sees no need here to tell us exactly how these men chose to structure the actual distribution of food, but there is no doubt whatsoever that it involved several levels of supervision, and these men, were the ones who spearheaded this effort. Okay. This was heavy duty administration. Now the word deacon is not used in a formal sense in this passage as an office or a title. But the Greek word that describes the task being given to these men in the passage is the same word from which we get the English word deacon. It's the word that means to serve. And I do believe that what we find in this passage is the earliest form of what became a vitally important office that was later formalized in the church, and that is the office of deacon. A second tier of headship in the church among men to oversee the many material and logistical facets of loving ministry that must be done faithfully in order for the body of Christ to carry on the work of Christ effectively. The list of qualifications that eventually uh, formalize that role is presented by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13. through 13. And it's very, very similar to the qualifications required of an elder. Here in Acts... Chapter 6, seven men were to be selected to serve tables so that the apostles could continue to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry or service of the word. Now, the word that's translated devote here is the same root word that was translated continually devoting. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, where Luke was talking about just the first 120 believers when the church was pretty small. He said, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. It speaks of, of, of both intensity and continuity, okay? He used the same word again in chapter 2, verse 42, after 3,000 new believers had been added to the church on the day of Pentecost. He said, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now in Acts chapter 6, the apostles resolved that they will continually devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, what is meant here by the ministry of the Word? Is it just another way of saying the proclamation of the gospel? Well, I believe it certainly includes the preaching of the gospel, but I also believe it goes much further than that. The apostles' teaching in chapter 1 and 2 and and the ministry of the Word here in chapter 6 include the apostles' instruction of the newborn church in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Peter's sermons in the first chapters of this book have made it crystal clear that all of the Old Testament prophets spoke of Jesus, the head of the church, now the head of the church, as the long-promised Christ. God, we've said it many times, God had been talking about Jesus ever since he started talking to human beings. So every believer in Jesus needed to know the Old Testament, and still does. But that's not all that the apostolic ministry of the word included. In John 16, Jesus made this great promise to these same apostles before Matthias joined their ranks. John 16, verses 12 to 15, Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, and he shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Guys, that promise is not about illumination of God's Word that is given to every believer. It's about additional revelation from God that hadn't been given yet. Revelation that the Holy Spirit would give to the apostles and through the apostles to the church. In other words, the outworking of that promise in John 16 is the New Testament, and we can be assured that the ministry of the Word that the Holy Spirit was accomplishing through Christ's apostles in these very early days of the church included very many of the truths that the Holy Spirit later recorded and preserved in the New Testament Scriptures for all the generations of the church to come after. In short, I believe the ministry of the Word to which God appointed the twelve apostles here included three things. The proclamation of the gospel of Christ to an unbelieving world. The exposition of the Old Testament scriptures with the focus always on Jesus as the fulfillment of God's whole plan of redemption in the Old Testament. And finally, the declaration of new revelation given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles of the truths that would then become recorded in the New Testament. That's the ministry of the word. In the generations of the church after the apostolic period, the ministry of the word that is overseen by the elders of the local church includes the first two, but with the New Testament included. It includes the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, and it includes the exposition of both testaments of God's written word. Now in churches like ours, Knowing and teaching God's Word may appear to be given a much higher priority than prayer. But here in Acts chapter 6 verse 4, prayer is the first of the two foundational apostolic responsibilities, prayer and the ministry of the Word. I am uh, One of the things that I was delighted to discover when I first became an elder here was that, that the first Roughly 40 to 45 minutes of every elders meeting is nothing but prayer. And many, many, many prayers for the for individuals and families in this body. And praise to God. I'll never forget a conversation that several of us had at Panera Bread one morning, uh, several years ago, with a dear brother named John Constantine. He was a minister in Africa, faithful minister of the word, He had seen much hardship in places where it was a whole lot harder to live as a believer than it has been here, at least until now. That brother said to us with great earnestness, a man who does not continually pray for the people in his church does not belong in the pulpit. I took those words very, very seriously. The Scottish preacher Eric Alexander, one of my favorite, nailed it when he said, Prayer is fundamental, not supplemental. The following two phrases that are in focus in this passage both use the exact same word for service or ministry. Serve tables in verse two and the service of the word in verse four, the ministry or service of the word. Is that that word diacaneo? Okay from which we get deacon, but it means service. Both are forms or expressions of service. The apostles, with the help of the congregation, appointed seven godly, faithful, spirit-filled men to oversee the ministry or service of tables, the distribution of food, so that they, the apostles, could focus on prayer and on the ministry or service of the word both categories of service are indispensable to the health and effectiveness of the body of Christ, the church. Again, it would be easy for us to conclude that because one of these ways to serve the body was assigned to the apostles and the other was given to the first deacons, that the the, the first kind of of service, the ministry of the word, is critically important and the second is just peripheral. (laughs) But the Bible makes it very clear that all all legitimate ministry proceeds from the personal knowledge of God, and all personal knowledge of God is created in the hearts of the redeemed by the Holy Spirit working through the Word. So, yes, there is a primacy to the Word. The Word of God is foundational to everything that happens in the church and in the individual life of every believer. But that does not mean that the ministry assigned to the seven men in this passage was in any way dispensable. The faithful care of widows and of others who do not have the level of material and financial provision that most people take for granted is treated by God in both testaments of his word as the very essence of living out the character of God in our relationships with one another. God loves the downcast and downtrodden, and if we don't, then we are lousy representatives of God. Moses' instruction to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 and 19, he said, He, Yahweh, executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien, the, the, the displaced foreigner, by giving him food and clothing so show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. James 1.27 says, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. God loves the downcast, and so must we. All right, that's the, the problem and the the solution given by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Next is the implementation. In verses 5 and 6 of Acts 6, we learn that the plan set forth here by the apostles found approval with the whole congregation. Isn't that great? After After all the complaining and arguing, this found approval with the whole congregation. Out of conflict and division had come powerful unity. And that heart of unity was displayed in a a very practical and impressive manner. This church made up of mostly Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jewish Christians chose seven men with Greek names, and thus very likely Hellenistic Jews, except for Nicholas, who was a Gentile proselyte to Judaism and then to Christ. Nicholas, a lot of people think of Cornelius when they think of the first Gentile, mentioned in the church in Acts. Nicholas was the first Gentile mentioned in Acts in the church. Verse 5 gives us the names of the seven men. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, you're supposed to look up at this point, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. It's really a different Timon than that one. Uh, Luke is very intentional here to draw special attention to Stephen, who will be sharply in focus at the end of chapter 6 and through all of chapter 7. You'll notice as you work through Luke's gospel and also through the book of Acts, Luke loves to introduce people a chapter or two before he actually drills down on what happened with them, and that's what, that's what he does here. The congregation brought these seven men before the apostles And the apostles prayed for them and then laid their hands on them. And the laying on of hands signified the apostles' identification with these men. The men were representing the apostles and also uh, signified their commendation of these men for the task that was being assigned to them. This was an ordination. Now, you get in trouble in brethren circles if you use that word too much. And if you don't like that word, it's fine, but it's a good word that explains very well what was going on here. Ordination in the Bible is not about making a distinction between clergy and laity, okay? Not at all. It is about handing off an assignment. It's the language of the workplace, the word ordain very literally means fill the hand. You take a task and you put it in somebody's hand. That's what it means to ordain. We are all ordained to do the work that's assigned to us by God. Just as with baptism, the apostles here were merely acknowledging in a visible way what God had already done invisibly. When the Holy Spirit orchestrated this whole selection of, Process that put the the work of over, overseeing this very very important facet of the care of the church into the hands of these seven godly and spirit filled men. All right, now we've considered the reasons these seven men were selected. Now let's talk. Let's look at the way they were selected. The apostles didn't didn't uh, pick these seven men themselves, and they didn't just hand off to the congregation the responsibility for choosing these men and then leave them to their own devices. They commissioned the congregation to select seven men who met a standard of godliness that they presented, and the apostles then authorized those men chosen by the congregation to take charge of this task. This was not congregational rule. It was not governing a church by popular vote. It was rule through a plurality of leaders at the highest level among men with those leaders, the apostles, answering to Christ as the head of his church at the highest level of all. That very same pattern was passed on to the church after the apostolic period through the the apostles' appointment of elders, plural, in each city, in each local church. A plurality of elders in every local community of saints at the highest level among men. And then those elders who were drawn from that community answered not to apostles after the apostolic period, they answered to Christ as the one chief shepherd. And that's the model that is in place now. It appears that these seven men, every one of them, embraced the task that they had received through the apostles. They appeared to treat this as a calling as a calling from God, not merely from men. No man should ever be arm twisted into the role of deacon or into any other work of ministry, and neither should any woman uh, be be arm twisted into into a work of ministry. God loves a cheerful giver, not a coerced giver. But at the same time, any man or woman who has been asked to consider serving the body in a specific way by the leadership that God has placed, uh, put in place in that body should not take that kind of request lightly. Again, the essential reason for the division of labor reflected in this passage uh, between the apostles and this earliest version of deacons, that division of labor was not because the tasks done by one of those groups was vital to the church and the other was not. The reason for the division of labor was because a jack of all trades is a master of none. To put it another way, the surest way to do nothing well is to do everything yourself. The operational principle here is very much the same as it was nearly 1,500 years earlier when Jethro, the father of father-in-law of Moses, very wisely confronted Moses for acting as if he, Moses could do all of the important decision making for an Israelite community of about 2 million people. Talk about biting off more than you can chew. In Exodus 18 verses 14 to 27, and this is very int- interesting to me in light of what we're talking about now. There are two parts, two parts to Jethro's wise and valuable counsel to Moses on God's behalf. The first is teach, and the second is delegate. The first is teach, and the second is delegate. First in verse 20 of Exodus 18, teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. See, Jethro admonished Moses to teach the people the word of God so that they would personally know the character and the ways of God, and then they wouldn't have to have every question answered by Moses or anyone else. They would have wisdom, godly wisdom. Secondly, Jethro admonished Moses to delegate. Verses 21 and 22. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth. Sounds kind of like the qualifications we're looking at here. Those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over the whole congregation as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. There was a, a lot of structure here. And let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Very commonsensical. Then in verse 23, Jethro told Moses what the outcome would be if he did those two things teach and delegate. If you do this and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people will go to their place in peace. Isn't that great? Friends, delegation is a godly and wise way to lead God's people. It always has been. All right, so we've seen the problem, the solution, the implementation. Now let's look at the outcome. In verse 7, Luke again gives us a progress report on the church. He says, and the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. (laughs) And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Considering what had happened in the last couple of chapters when he says the number continued to increase greatly, it's 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 hard to imagine what the church was like by this point. (laughs) Nobody knows just how many people had become part of the community of faith at this point, but what we do know is it was a lot. And those numbers were increasing greatly and at a very steady clip day by day. At this point, the advance of the gospel and the growth of the church was still happening mostly in and around one city, Jerusalem. But through two of these seven first deacons, Stephen and Philip, we will see that it starts moving outside of Jerusalem really fast. Luke's mention of the priests in verse 7 is significant, very significant. He says, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's a big deal. Now, the phrase obedient to the faith, I believe that means that many of the priests from from Jerusalem and many who had come into Jerusalem for that Feast of Pentecost (laughs) were responding to the gospel command. You know the gospel is a command, right? Right? The same command that Peter set before the multitude in chapter 2 and that he set before the Sanhedrin in chapter 4, repent and return, trusting in Jesus as the long-promised Messiah and Savior, spoken of by all of the prophets, so that your sins may be wiped away and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Obedience to the gospel means trusting in the atoning blood and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as the only merit you will ever have and ever need in the sight of God. Let me say that again. Obedience to the gospel means trusting in the atoning blood and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as the only merit that you will ever need and ever have in the sight of God. The fact that a great many of the priests right here in Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish faith, were coming to Christ would surely have been a marvelous encouragement to the apostles and all of the believers in Jerusalem. Two very different threats had arisen in the early days of the church that could have put the unity and the mission of the church on very perilous ground if they had not been decisively addressed. The first was the self-serving deception of Ananias and Sapphira. It was grounded in a love of stuff instead of a love of Christ. The second, and also in the love of the approval of men, just as damaging, The second was the rivalry between the Hellenistic Jewish believers and the Palestinian Jewish believers that had had produced a failure of godly and loving care for the, the Hellenistic widows. And along with that, the complaints and animosity that arose between believers in that church because of that failure. But the Holy Spirit was working mightily in the spiritual household of God, just as he is today. I hope everyone here knows that we have a really, really good shepherd. God has used a motley crew like us ever since the church started. The church is not made up of perfect Christians. It's made up of people who struggle and who have a lot of relationship problems. <laughs> but God is always right here in our midst. It is he who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And beloved, that applies both individually and corporately. God delights in building up his church. And he never leaves us, never leaves us to our own devices. And that's really good. It's really, really good. In Matthew 16, Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We can still count on that magnificent promise. God has given to us the Holy Spirit who is at work in every individual believer and in his church so that we may both will and work for his good pleasure. He has not left us ever, ever to our own power or to our own devices. And he has not left us as orphans. We have the most powerful help in this life that anyone could possibly have. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him above all power and authority in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And that power is the Holy Spirit. And he has made us more than conquerors. Dear Father, we're grateful for this very instructive episode in the early life of Christ Church. We ask that you would give us eyes to see how we must follow the example that we find here so that this flock that you created to glorify yourself would do just that. We would glorify our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We would glorify the triune God. We ask this in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen.